This episode might make you feel more hopeful about our chances of reaching our collective climate goals of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. We hope so, because in this episode, we show you that we actually have the green technologies we need to transform our production and consumption of energy. And by moving away from fossil fuels and towards green energy, we can cut our carbon emissions in half by 2030. This is the fourth episode of Climate Action Now, a series where we investigate what it takes to transform our energy system from black to green in order to reach our climate goals and protect our shared home, planet Earth. In the first three episodes of this series, we've heard that in order to stop global warming at 1.5 degrees, we need to systemically change the way we produce and use energy. This is because 73% of all global emissions come from energy. We've also heard that the transformation of our energy requires more green energy, a phase-out of fossil fuels, improved energy efficiency and increased electrification. In this episode, we take a closer look at the green energy solutions that are replacing fossil fuels and we talk about how green energy has become even cheaper than fossil fuels. We'll also look at the many ways the world will change once we implement these green solutions because green technologies benefit more than just our climate. For instance, they give us clean air and provide new jobs. We visit the large offshore wind project in the state of New Jersey and hear how it's revitalising the struggling Atlantic City and its population. Welcome to episode four of Climate Action Now, a podcast about climate change and solutions, created by the energy company Orsted, ranked the most sustainable company in the world. My name is Peter Stanners, and I'm your host. Dr. Sven Tesker, research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney, has devoted his entire career to green energy. We asked him the simple question, do we have the solutions we need to create a world that runs entirely on green energy? So we do have uh, all the technologies available to produce enough electricity and heat and also transport energy um, to maintain an economic growth on a global level and at the same time phase out fossil fuels. The problem we have here is a political problem and not a technical problem and also not an economical one. There's an abundance of green energy technologies available, but some are more important than others, says Sven Teske. On the generation side for electricity, uh, the four most important technologies are solar photovoltaics, um, onshore wind, offshore wind and um, hydropower. And then we have a variety of different other renewables like geothermal energy, bioenergy, um, wave and tidal energy, which uh, will probably only fulfill a niche, uh, but in some cases, in some region, a very, uh, regions, a very important niche. So we have a huge mix, but uh, wind and solar photovoltaics are the most important one on the generation side. It's cheaper to build renewable energy technologies, such as wind and solar, than to build coal and gas power plants in most of the world. And in the rest of the world, they're on their way to becoming cheaper too. So by far the cheapest way of generating electricity uh, compared to new build power plants right now are solar photovoltaics and onshore wind followed by offshore wind. If you're wondering what solar photovoltaics are, it's the same as solar panels. 
In addition to solar and wind, there's also a number of emerging technologies that are necessary to make the world that runs entirely on green energy. Mainly storage. Uh, we need um, storage to be independent from wind pattern and uh, from so solar pattern, um, as well as uh, for to transport electricity, for example, in vehicles, as uh, a cable is not an option. So um, the emerging, the most important emerging technologies are storage technologies. Storage is not just a battery. Uh, we also have like hydropower, uh, hydro hydrogen. Um, storage, so we we turn water into hydrogen and oxygen, and we use those hydrogen to replace uh, gas, for example. Sven Teska briefly mentioned batteries. They're currently experiencing a similar price decline that we've seen with solar and wind. Large grid-scale batteries can help to store power in the short term when there's a surplus of wind and solar power, and dispatch it back into the grid when there's a lower supply of power. He also talks about hydrogen. In short, renewable electricity, like wind power, can be used to split water molecules to obtain hydrogen. This renewable hydrogen has many applications. It can replace the hydrogen that's currently used in heavy industry, which is currently derived from fossil fuels. It can be transformed into so-called electrofuels that can fuel our planes and ships. And in the longer term, renewable hydrogen can even act as a storage mechanism and feed energy back to the power grid at times of peak demand. These emerging and important technologies like batteries and renewable hydrogen aren't necessarily all mature and cost competitive yet, but they can follow the same cost reduction journey as solar and wind, says Sven Teske. In order to drop the prices for um renewable power generation or renewable energy in, in general or basically it's true for all products um, it's called the the, uh, the learning curve so with doubling of the production capacity manufacturing capacity usually the price drops uh, drops by around 5 10 15 percent depending on the technology so what we need is a stable growing market for renewables in order to increase the uh, manufacturing capacity for those technologies and that will uh, put the prices down because you can produce and manufacture them more efficiently and um, that has a sort of a positive feedback role because if renewables are cheaper or this technology then the market is bigger for that technology and then you can increase the market any further. We'll return to Sven Teske. But let's just take a look at one of the technologies whose prices dropped significantly in recent years, offshore wind. We talked to somebody who watched that happen up close. Jane Cooper is the head of regulatory affairs and stakeholders for Orsted in the UK. She's watched the price of offshore wind drop by 70%. This is an over 70% drop over the five-year period, which is is significant. I mean, it's it's amazing. And the price for new offshore wind is now cheaper than the price for new fossil fuels. According to Jane Cooper, Orsted has been the main driver in a significant price drop. I mean, Orsted's played a huge role in this, particularly in the UK. You know, we've had a strategic focus on offshore wind and we've made really large investments, which has given the supply chain the confidence to invest in new technology and, and new manufacturing facilities. There is no one single reason for the significant price drop, she explains. It's a combination of economies of scale, which means the more you build, the cheaper it gets, as well as technological innovation, a strong and growing supply chain, government and industry collaboration, 
as well as experience. We look at the economies of scale, building more, building bigger. We're doing that. That's that's bringing down costs significantly. That's probably one of the main areas. We're looking at innovating. We're looking at more efficient wind turbines. The turbines get bigger. We're looking at more efficient installation vessels. We're looking at better, more efficient foundation designs. And we're looking about how we can source and design the, the offshore wind structures. Thirdly, we have the supply chain. We're looking at how we can how we can build increased efficiencies into the supply chain, how we can help different supply chain companies leverage off each other. Maybe one supply chain company knows how to do a different type of manufacturing that then we can help other ones to understand. There's also the experience, just learning by doing, know the jobs better and better. We become more efficient as we carry on, as we carry on doing more, more building more wind farms, learning more about them. If you want a visual example of how much the industry has changed, the enormous growth in size of wind turbines is a good one. As Jane Cooper mentioned, they've grown significantly in recent years. Now we're looking at turbines which are the size of 8 megawatts, which is the size of the Blackpool Tower or the Humber Bridge. The Blackpool Tower in Blackpool, England is 158 metres tall. And bigger turbines is just one example of innovation that has helped to drive down the cost. Another example of innovation is that foundations are getting lighter. In 2013, Orsted, together with 10 major industry partners and three universities, developed new design principles for wind turbine foundations. The new design models allowed for foundations that use significantly less steel. This all made foundations cheaper, easier to install and transport, and ultimately improved the price of offshore wind farms. A third example is the increased use of robotics, says Jane Cooper. Increasingly, we're using robotics and digitisation. We use drones offshore to, to check on the wind turbines and we can bring back the information via digitisation, via links. It's, it's, a, it's a new world we're moving into. And obviously, this makes for increased efficiencies, more innovation. And we get to know our wind our wind parks better so we can identify when we need to uh, improve the operations and maintenance base. These are just some of the examples that have helped to cut the cost of offshore wind. It's not only up to business and markets. Politicians in the UK, Denmark and other countries have played an important role as well by continuing to push for more offshore wind. In so doing, they made it possible to scale up production of wind turbines and bring down costs. In 2014, we were fortunate we had three contracts from government. Here, Jane Cooper is talking about how Orsted was awarded three government contracts to build three offshore wind farms. And with those three contracts, that gave somebody like Siemens in in Hull the confidence to build a factory to supply the turbines. It gave everyone more confidence. We were able to make that capital investment, which has been highly successful. The precise number of UK jobs created by the offshore wind industry is uncertain, but the goal was to reach 27,000, says Jane Cooper. The industry, the developers, the supply chain struck a deal with government, the sector deal for offshore wind, which looks at increasing exports, uh, increasing UK content, increasing diversity in the industry, increasing the number of people working in the industry. At the moment, there's around 10,000 people working in the supply chain and in the direct supply chain, direct developers. And we have an ambition to reach 27,000 people working in the developers and the tier one supply chain by 2030. 
Now that offshore wind has become so cheap, it's now considered a key element in building a world that runs on green energy. This 100% green scenario is something that Sven Teske in Sydney, Australia, has spent a lot of time thinking about. It was with the financial help of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation that Sven Teske and his team developed a model for how the world can run on 100% green energy. Sven Teske and his team called it One Earth Climate Model. Our One Earth Climate Model is, in a nutshell, a global energy uh, pathway which shows how, on a global level and broken down to 72 uh, regions worldwide, what needs to be done to decarbonize the energy sector as such, including transport and industry and heating and electricity, and uh, what needs to be done in the non-energy uh, greenhouse gas emission sectors. So we asked Ventesca. What's holding us back? Well, there are neither technical nor economic uh, barriers. Um, the main barrier for an energy transition is uh, political framework, the lack of political framework, and a long-term commitment in order to organize. We'll talk more about these barriers in the next episode. As I mentioned in the start, we won't only be talking about green energy's positive impact on climate change in this episode. We will also be looking at the other ways in which transforming our energy system will change the world and benefit us. And there are many outcomes from a green world besides halting global warming. One benefit is what communities will save on importing fuels. If we want to create a world that runs entirely on green energy, Sven Teske's numbers show that it might take a lot of upfront investments to deploy green energy at the necessary scale. But green energy does not need fuel on a running basis, with the exception of sustainable bioenergy. This means that we would save money that we would spend on coal, oil and gas. These savings would largely finance the investments that are required for a total transition from fossil fuels to green energy. The money we save on fossil fuels won't just finance the green transition. By investing in green energy solutions, countries can keep the money in their own territory instead of investing in foreign nations' oil and gas production. Yeah, renewable energy has more benefits than um, um, emission reduction. Also, it has the benefit to have uh, local workforces to uh, create a local economy. Also, um, locally produced energy, community energy, uh, will actually take care that the money paid for the energy remains in the community. If you uh, pay your electricity bill and uh, the power plants operates on foreign fossil fuels, parts of the money goes actually outside the community, definitely, but sometimes outside the country. Um, so it, it helps to um, have more energy independence uh, for mainly developing countries who have no own resources. And that also makes them less vulnerable for uh, global fossil fuel uh, price uh, um, fluctuations, which is a huge problem. So a world that runs on green energy, like wind and solar power, protects nations from price fluctuations in the fossil fuel industry. It also invests money back into local communities instead of abroad, says Sventeska. Another benefit of going green is cleaner air. Because when we burn fossil fuels, they release particle pollution into the air that we breathe. Many premature deaths around the globe are due to air pollution because these particles cause heart, lung and other diseases. Transforming from fossil fuels to green energy 
can save more than 4 million lives a year from reduced air pollution. Air pollution is a huge problem. Not entirely uh, only from uh, energy processes, but uh, to a large extent. And clean air is definitely another benefit from, uh, from renewable energy. Another benefit of going green and replacing fossil fuels with renewable energy solutions is the creation of more jobs. We talked to Samantha Smith, the director of the Just Transition Centre. This is an initiative of the International Trade Union Confederation. ITC represents 207 million organised workers in 162 countries. Samantha Smith spent all of her time working for a just transition for workers when the energy sector goes from black to green. We caught her via telephone and asked her a simple question. Will the green transition of the energy sector result in more or less jobs? Well... Um, according to the International Labour Organization and also the the United Nations and others who have gone deeply into this issue, like the International Renewable Energy um, Agency, it, overall, the net effect is going to be many more jobs. But, you know, having said that, those jobs will not be evenly distributed geographically. So you may not have a big pulse of jobs in transition in the same areas where today you have a lot of coal mining and or coal-fired power. And not all of the jobs will be sort of one-to-one equivalents. So it's really important as we think about just transition and how, you know, how are we collectively going to land this enormous effort that we are not thinking that, for example, coal miners are going to become wind power technicians. The International Labour Organization does estimate that wind and solar power will lead to more jobs. This is because these green technologies are typically more labour-intensive than fossil fuels when you total the people that are needed for manufacturing, construction, installation, operation, maintenance and fuel processing. In her own job, Samantha Smith has seen great examples of just transitioning in the energy sector. Three years ago, I was in Canada with our affiliate, the Canadian Labour Congress, at their national environment meeting. And I was talking to some brothers from the Canadian power sector unions who work in the province of Ontario. They, you know, in in their work life, they had seen the power sector company go from burning coal to being um, primarily hydro and basically phasing out coal entirely in the province of Ontario. So that, um, as they were saying to me, Ontario now has some of the cleanest power around and certainly much cleaner than the power produced, for example, in Germany. And they were super proud about that. The other thing they were really happy about is that they were still working in the same place. Um, Their jobs had changed somewhat, but they had gotten some new skills. According to Samantha Smith, The key for workers when transitioning from black to green energy is involving them and retraining them. Labour unions across the world are focusing on this topic right now and the UN has created guidelines for a just transition for workers. But more than anything, it's crucial that companies themselves focus on the future of their employees, says Samantha Smith. What is happening in in some places is that companies have made a commitment to not leaving anyone behind. So basically that they will retain, retrain, and redeploy the workers that they have today. 
So as opposed to firing everybody who's worked in the coal value chain, then hiring new people, they will keep people, retain them, and redeploy them in other parts of the company. And that is, uh, again, from, from a worker perspective, that's what we want to see from companies, and we do see it from, from some employers. One of the places where this transition is starting to take place is in Atlantic City in the state of New Jersey in the U.S., Here, Orsted is in the process of building New Jersey's first utility-scale offshore wind farm, Ocean Wind. The 1,100-megawatt project will be located 15 miles off the coast of Atlantic City and provide clean and reliable energy to more than half a million homes in New Jersey. Jamil Khan is the development manager for market strategies and new projects at Orsted in the U.S., we talked to him about what this new project means for the state of New Jersey. The value proposition for our project from the beginning was that we would have strong local content commitments. That means real dollars spent within the state of New Jersey. Uh, uh, part of our project uh, commitment was to spend uh, uh, about $695 million within the state of New Jersey just during the development and construction period alone. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned previously, we are working with our suppliers to establish uh, uh, the first monopile production facility in the U.S. right now uh, in New Jersey to supply ocean wind and then uh, hopefully projects coming after that. Um, we also plan on establishing an operations and maintenance harbor uh, in Atlantic City with local jobs throughout the life of the project. Uh, and then, you know, uh, after all is said and done in total, our project will result in approximately uh, uh, increase to the state GDP of about $1 billion. Uh, this is going to be a major uh, economic boost for the state of New Jersey. Uh, we have uh, an estimate that uh, over the life of the project uh, will actually create about 7,000 uh, job years uh, in New Jersey. And, um, and that, that'll be just directly from the project. Uh, but once you take into account all the, the secondary economic impacts of our project, we'll actually uh, uh, create about 15,000 jobs within the state of New Jersey. Some listeners will have heard of Atlantic City. It's known for its casinos, boardwalks and beaches, and it was the hub for party life and gambling from the 1920s onwards. A totally new dimension in entertainment is only a bus ride away in the new Atlantic City. But the city fell upon hard times. And according to the South Jersey Economic Review, more than 25,000 jobs were lost after the recession. Furthermore, the city's GDP declined by 21% between 2006 and 2015, the biggest dip of any metro area in the country. Five casinos shut down in two years, and the day after the 2016 US election, the city was taken over by the state in order to avoid a default. The offshore wind project, Ocean Wind, will create a myriad of different jobs in the state. Many of the workers will come from local unions within New Jersey. Uh, these are workers with incredible skill in building complex infrastructure projects such as power plants, transmission lines, roads, bridges, and uh, many other types of infrastructure. Uh, it's definitely be the first offshore wind project uh, built in New Jersey, so uh, we'll have to do uh, some skills training and uh, uh, some transfer of uh, the knowledge that Orsted's been able to to gain in developing projects around the world. 
Uh, but really through our suppliers, we'll also create manufacturing jobs in New Jersey. Uh, these will be a mix of skilled and unskilled workers, uh, some with experience and some will have to be uh, trained uh, either by us or by our local partners. Uh, we'll also, uh, as I mentioned, establish an operations and maintenance harbor in Atlantic City. And for uh, that harbor, we'll actually train and employ technicians who will live, uh, excuse me, who will go out into the wind farm on a daily basis, warehouse workers, white collar workers. Uh, we'll also likely use existing suppliers in New Jersey who do various activities like iron work, electrical work, uh, permitting professionals, survey vessels, and uh, really uh, many other types of uh, jobs in the state of New Jersey. This project will provide opportunities for some of the youth who are struggling right now. We've actually started to do uh, recruiting into workforce development programs on the ground in New Jersey. Uh, we have uh, something called the Competitive Edge Program in Atlantic City itself, uh, where we have uh, employees from Orsted who will be responsible for uh, uh, designing and building this project, uh, speaking to uh, inner city youth in Atlantic City, uh, letting them know what the opportunity looks like in the offshore wind industry, and then putting them on a path uh, uh, to uh, uh, learn the skills that they need to actually work uh, and have a career in this industry. Uh, we've also uh, established uh, grant programs for local universities to establish workforce development programs that, uh, using their, their students uh, and members of the communities around those universities. Jamil Khan believes Ocean Wind will make a big difference to the city. You know, Atlantic City is a, a incredible and historic town. Uh, this is... Uh, um, it's it's one that's been really hard hit uh, economically, and uh, you know I, I think everyone realizes that Atlantic City's uh, main economy has been uh, casino and gambling and their local tourism with beaches, and so um, uh, bringing a whole new uh, industry sector to Atlantic City is is something that that is uh, going to be huge for the city itself. We asked Jamil Khan what it means to the workers of New Jersey to now work with green energy as opposed to working with fossil fuels. You know, I, I think the, the men and women who contributed so much uh, to the economy in New Jersey really feel a sense of pride uh, to be a part of, of building the infrastructure and economy of the 21st century. Just as their parents and grandparents felt in building the, the infrastructure and economy of the 20th century. Uh, you know, New Jersey um, historically has been the epicenter of, of uh, uh, American innovation and ingenuity in the past. And this rich tradition will really continue with ocean wind uh, and many more offshore wind projects just like it. In this episode, we heard that we do have the technological solutions we need to reach our collective climate goals of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. Some solutions are cheaper than fossil fuels, and some have yet to drop enough in price to be deployed at a global scale. But by investing in new technologies, their prices will drop as well. We've also heard in this episode that investing and deploying new green technologies will benefit us in many other ways too. Nations will become energy independent, the air we breathe becomes cleaner, and we also make more jobs. As Sventeska puts it, we do have uh, all the uh, technologies available. The problem we have here is a political problem and not a technical problem. In the next episode of Climate Action Now, we take a closer look at the barriers that are holding us back from acting and transforming our energy system right away. 
we talk to experts about how we get rid of the barriers that stand between us and the green transition. After this episode, you might wonder what you can do in the fight against climate change. You might wonder how you can push the systemic change that's needed in the right direction. Well, a good place to start is Orsted's website, where you can find a whole series of advice on how to get started. Go to orsted.com forward slash act now to learn how you can start acting. This podcast is created by Orsted. It's produced by Sophie Tholl, and my name is Peter Stannis.